This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from the Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, an auditor told the Orleans Parish School Board that there were several issues with the 2020 finances at a special committee meeting this week, and COVID cases are on the rise in schools. A man who was granted parole after serving time for several decades is at risk of losing that freedom after an alleged drug overdose in the Angola prison. And the New Orleans City Council announced on Tuesday that it plans to start holding in-person meetings again this month after more than a year of virtual meetings due to the coronavirus crisis. Those stories, insight and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. On the podcast this week, education reporter Marta Jusen. Hey, Marta. Hi, Carolyn. Criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel's here. Hello, Nick. Hey, Carolyn. Government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein is joining. Hi, Michael. Good morning. And Lens editor Charles Maldonado is here. Hello, Charles. Good morning. Marta, first up in education, an auditor working for the Orleans Parish School Board identified several problems with the finances this week. What did she say? The Finance Committee held a special meeting to get an update on this audit, which is at this point in time about five months late. So we kind of knew there were some ongoing issues. The I think the, kind of the top, you know, two or three that she discussed were that, you know, the board last year had failed to um, amend its budget anytime it was going to overspend by more than 5%, which is a violation of a, of a state budgeting law. And you know, in addition to that, the board had, they have admitted this already, people know about it, but I know it's been very frustrating for school leaders. Um, they accidentally paid out this money that was supposed to be paid out this year, last year. Mm. So now this year during the pandemic, the schools are not getting this additional um, $100 per student that they thought they would be getting. That comes from a, a special fund that was set aside. Uh, so just, you know, a, a, a number of financial issues. They had seven different findings, which I know uh, board members are pretty concerned about. And why is the audit so late? Uh, I think part of it is working through all of these um, different issues. You know, the auditor said basically that they're going as fast as they can, but they need this information from the administration to be able to finish everything. And then I know that the uh, district has had turnover in their finance department. So I think they're kind of trying to, you know, rebuild these systems and develop better systems uh, instead of kind of doing playing catch up once a year. Yeah, I think a lot of like local government agencies have gotten extensions for the 20, their 2020 audits just because um, their finances were a lot more complicated in 2020 for obvious reasons. And also a lot of them were kind of working with, you know, kind of skeleton staff for a lot of the year because, you know, mm -hmm. they have people coming into the office. The skeleton staff thing is something I hadn't thought of, and I, I bet you're right about that. But when did we get the first federal funding? Because, you know, this year ended, this budget year ended June 30th of 2020. The first influx of federal funding came in before that, didn't it? After the uh, CARES Act? I think so. I'm trying to remember. I guess it must yeah, have been that, there. That would have been in March. PPPs, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm curious about the one issue that seems to be a recurring issue, which is that, um, and the, the auditor was very clear to say that this isn't misappropriation, it's just misallocation uh, of, of budgeting numbers. And so I'm, I'm interested in how money comes in and then it gets spent somehow against what, uh, in contrary 
in contravention of what the budget suggests that it should go to. But all that needs is a um, sort of imprimatur from the from the board to say, no, we're increasing this side to allocate those resources. So where I'm going with that is, um, doesn't someone at each school or in the finance office need to say, we're spending it here now? Is it just the communication breakdown, do you think? Yeah, I mean, procedurally, there just seems to be forgotten steps. You know, they one example they gave was they uh, approved that $5 million for student technology at the beginning of the pandemic. Yeah. And they, they um, appropriately and properly approved that money. The board approved the money to be spent. Right. They never amended the overall budget to reflect that. Yeah, but yeah, basically... With a thing like that, it, you're supposed to, if you, it, with that much money, since it's more than 5% of that particular fund that they're going over, that's the threshold is 5%. Um, you should be taking two votes. You should be taking a vote to spend the money, and you should be taking a second vote, vote to amend your budget. They okay. just didn't take the second vote. Right. Okay. And, and I think that's a fair and good thing that we want to have out there so the public knows when those, you know, kind of big changes are happening. Um, but I think you're, you're right in that if this is something that's happening over and over where it's, you know, it's not fraud, it's not mis, missed um, spending or anything like that. It's just these procedural issues. Like, well, what can we do to correct it so they're not having these long audits the next year? Right. You've got a quote in your story, which I really like, from um, one of the uh, board member, Marshall, who says, um, I've been here eight years. Every year we've had an audit and people in this district that gave us information with the errors what I'd like to see is the board working with your firm to understand what checks we can put in place as a board and what we should be looking for at the end of a quarter, which to me is a really smart way to look at this whole thing. Like, okay, you know, if this happens every year, how do we need to go backwards on that to correct the issue so that we don't keep saying, oh yeah, we did that again. Oh yeah, we did that again. Yeah, I, I think having a, a guiding document or some kind of, you know, questions that you need to be asking at each board meeting is important. Um, and if, if we see this at the Orleans Parish School Board, we know that charter school boards need to have this kind of thing too, right? Like, you know, New Beginnings Charter Group violated the Davis-Bacon Act like for 10 years in a row or something like that. It might not have been that long, but it literally was in their audit so many times. There, You know, there's just these financial niches that people don't necessarily know about. And It'd be good to have a framework to ask questions about, you know, what's happening every month. How long has Stuart Gay been in this position? He has been there for, I think, just coming up on a year. So they definitely, they've had transition in the finance department. There's been a lot of turnover at the district in general, and there's been turnover in the finance department. And um, Mr. Gay said that, you know, they also have vacancies. So they might need to bring in some extra help to kind of finish out this financial year. Right. Okay. And what's happening with COVID now at schools? We saw a small uptick in cases. Um, I've asked the district if they have known anything about variants because we know that those are you know popping up um, in Louisiana. I think we have seven cases so far of the Brazilian variant, and we've had a handful of the UK. So I, I think that's kind of the next thing people are thinking about is, as vaccines slow down. Is are these variants going to tick up, and what does that mean in schools? You know, can our kids a greater vector for the spread of this. Um, but the district, as of a couple of weeks ago, had said they hadn't, they had no knowledge of variants, so we don't exactly know. Right. Um, but school's wrapping up in the next couple of weeks, so um, hopefully it's not a vector for any of that spread. Right, as we close in on the end of the school year. 
and hopefully some graduation ceremonies. Yeah, I think I think we're going to be able to have much more normal-ish graduation ceremonies. But I do know that boards have have talked a lot about you know how tough it is to limit crowds at a graduation ceremony. If you you have to ticket the event, and kids can only bring a certain amount of family members or relatives. That that's pretty tough. Right. Okay. Thanks, Marta. Thanks, Carolyn. Nick, in criminal justice, you have a story about an Angola prisoner, Bobby Sneed, who was paroled after being behind bars for almost 50 years, but now that parole is perhaps in jeopardy because of some alleged drug use. What's the background with him? Yeah, so Bobby Sneed was um, convicted of being a principal to murder in, back in 1975. He he had served as a as a lookout during a during a robbery in which uh, there were five other men involved and three of those men went to a, a couple's house and beat them and tied them up and 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 robbed them and the the husband who was, who was an elderly man ended up ended up dying. Um, so Sneed was convicted and sentenced to to life in prison um, for that crime. Although he never entered the residence himself and um, also he he didn't have any other criminal history. So, yeah, he's he's been locked up for for nearly fifty years, forty seven years, um, and in March he was granted parole, and he he was granted parole unanimously, and was getting ready to to go home. But four days before his release date, he uh, collapsed in the prison, was taken to the hospital. Uh, his his family was informed that that he was maybe going to die, which he did not, but. Uh, during during that time, the prison conducted a drug test and and claimed that it came back positive for um, amphetamines and, and methamphetamines. So he then had to go through some kind of disciplinary hearing for that. Yeah. So so he wasn't released when when he was supposed to be released, which was uh, March 29th. He instead was put in administrative segregation, which is a sort of restricted housing unit that is. Uh, used for when when disciplinary proceedings are pending, and he stayed there for almost a month, uh, waiting to to get this this hearing uh, to determine whether or not he was going to be officially sanctioned for having contraband in the prison. Which, under the the rule book of the prison rule book, if you are found to have drugs in your system, then then that um, you can be con- convicted for for having contraband for possession. Um, it's it's almost like possession. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Wow. Okay. Um, the, the way the rules are written, uh, that that's that's how it works. Hmm. And so the way the way parole works is that if you get a disciplinary write up uh, between the time you've been granted parole and the uh, and the time you're actually released, the parole board is allowed to revoke that parole. So this disciplinary hearing had the potential to you know have a, have huge consequences. Um, he if he had his parole revoked, he wouldn't be eligible again to even apply for a hearing until uh, March of next year. And and even then, you know, his his lawyer was warning that that it was really unlikely he would be even given another hearing and much less granted parole after mm. having it revoked once. Sneed is seventy four years old. Uh, he suffered a stroke uh, in which he had to kind of relearn to to walk and talk. Uh, he he. Is, is very slow moving and, and uh, kind of speaks with a slur and is, is not in terrific health as it is even before this latest incident. Um, so, you know, there's a decent chance that, that he doesn't have a, a, a tremendously long amount of time left to, left to live. So this 
was was a real heartbreaking situation for his family. He has four kids, um, so so they were really looking forward to, to seeing him. But that is still to be determined whether or not. Was the collapse and the finding of possession, or if you will, um, did that trigger an, a disciplinary meeting, a hearing automatically? Is that is it just a pro forma procedural thing, or do they have some leeway here? Did they um, have leeway that they chose not to use? I think that the, I mean, the prison has has the you know prison officials have the option of kind of pursuing disciplinary charges with, with their discretion. Bobby Sneed's lawyer, Thomas Frampton, was writing letters to uh, you know the the uh, Department of Corrections Secretary James LeBlanc, uh, urging him to kind of drop these disciplinary charges and and allow Bobby to to go home. I mean, his lawyer's argument was that. Even, even if even if what the prisoner was alleging is true and that he had uh, drugs in his system, you know, this is a medical problem and his lawyers lined up and multiple nonprofits who testified at his parole hearing said that they had this support system for him when he got out of prison. Mm. Um, his lawyer says that they have 100% of inpatient drug treatment, you know, ready to be funded when he gets out. So he, he was arguing, you know, look, we can take care of this. Even if it, even if this is a problem, we can, we can do a better job taking care of it outside of the prison. Huh. So, so they cleared him on the contraband charge this week, and then they put a new charge on him, which is being in the wrong dorm at the time. Is that correct? Of his court? Yeah. Yeah. So, so Bobby's disciplinary hearing was on Wednesday, um, and all all I know about it is from what his lawyer has told me. I've tried to get confirmation from the prison. What the prison has said, they emailed me last night, a spokesperson emailed me last night after I published this story saying that all they said was that um, disciplinary action is still pending. But what I learned from his lawyer is that Bobby had this hearing. uh, It was a a three-hour hearing in which there was no testimony from from anyone. Um, There was no, you know, cross-examination of witnesses. Um, but his lawyer kind of pointed to a number of discrepancies in the reports and um, basically suggested that there wasn't much evidence that the sample that was tested even belonged to Bobby. And so the board came back and, and actually cleared cleared him of the contraband charge and, mm. and cleared him of the drug charge. But at the same time, they brought a new separate charge alleging that he had been in the wrong dorm the time that he collapsed, and that is a rule violation uh, of being in the wrong place. Um, they had never informed him of this alleged rule violation for the, you know, over over a month while he was uh, waiting for a disciplinary hearing. Um, they never informed his, his attorney of it. it. It seems that, you know, they, it, it, it's hard to, to know what the process was there, uh, why they decided to bring this uh, new additional charge at the last minute. But the result of that is that is that Bobby now is facing a new disciplinary uh, sanction and we'll have a hearing on that. Um, I believe it's scheduled for uh, today's is Thursday, um, May 6th. And that could potentially, you know, have the same impact as this previous one. Uh, he has the, the, it's possible that his parole will get revoked. Being in the wrong location at least sounds to me like a less serious uh, uh, disciplinary violation than, than contraband. The way it works is that when you're dealing with a with a potential parole 
revocation, any disciplinary violation, they're, they're all equal. It doesn't matter the seriousness of them. Yeah, so the, the parole board's policy doesn't uh, delineate between, you know, more serious and less serious charges. So both contraband and being in the in the wrong place are, are Schedule B violations, so kind of the same level of seriousness. If you're just looking at that, there's, you know, no real distinction, but, you know, the parole board has discretion, so they could determine hmm. that in fact it is less serious that this was this it's not a, a good enough reason to have to revoke his parole you know i called the executive director of the parole board and he hadn't even heard yet what the what the outcome of uh, bobby's disciplinary hearing was so so he wasn't ready to ready to comment on what that decision would be if you're granted parole do you get out that day or is there a because we know Louisiana has some processing problems. So. Right. No, you do not get out that day. I mean, that was the that was the issue is that um, you know there was it, at least uh, a week, and I not, can't remember the exact date he was uh, granted parole. But yeah, it takes it takes a bit to process it, and that's why there was this uh, period in which he had he had been granted parole, he hadn't been released, and and that's when he had this uh, incident. Okay. So now we wait. What, when did you say the new hearing is? Well, it was. It is scheduled for. Um, it, from what his lawyer has told me, it's scheduled for for two o'clock today on today's Thursday. Thursday. Um, so if that goes forward, you know, we might have some new information at, at some point this afternoon or this evening. But you know, his his lawyer is also just hoping to get this this new charge dismissed uh, outright. You can file a motion for dismissal and. If, if you have strong enough evidence, then ostensibly you can get it dismissed prior to a hearing. So, so we'll see. Oh, I can't even imagine that family. If he gets, if the charges are dismissed or in one way or another, it all goes forward. I bet they want to put bubble wrap around him and for the couple of weeks that it'll take for him to get out. Yeah. I mean, I think it's been a, a very emotional and tumultuous uh, last month or so for that. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, Nick. Great story. Thank you. And a quick update on this story. On Thursday, the prison dropped the charges against Sneed without a hearing, but on Friday, the parole board announced that it was rescinding his parole. Sneed is scheduled to appear before the parole board again on Monday. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are education reporter Marta Jusen, criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, I'm Ann Muller, Chief Operating Officer at The Lens. The Lens aims to engage and empower the residents of New Orleans and the Gulf Coast. If you'd like the inside scoop on what stories we're pursuing, what events and initiatives are coming up, and to learn more about the people who report at The Lens, Subscribe today to our newsletter at thelensnola.org slash newsletters. Thank you. Michael, sounds like city council is going back to a bit of business as usual with in-person meetings starting. Uh, what is happening and, and when? Yeah, so, you know, a little over a year, um, the city council has been holding virtual meetings because of the coronavirus, um, and it looks like uh, in the next couple weeks, um, we're going to start meeting in person again. Um, This follows announcements by the state and the city last week that they were uh, loosening coronavirus restrictions and, and certain rules on businesses. 
indoor um, gatherings in New Orleans can be up to 250 people now. And basically, I think what the council's position was is that their legal authority to not hold in-person meetings is, is getting kind of thinner and thinner. At the same time, you know, we're not fully back to normal. Um, and, you know, this is not going to be exactly what we were, um, you know, doing before the pandemic. It's going to be kind of a a hybrid model um, that will allow people to still participate virtually if they're uncomfortable for now going into person. And the in-person meeting is going to be a lot smaller than usual. So city council chamber um, can hold, you know, roughly 250 guests. That's going to be uh, reduced down to about 30 or 40 people inside at one time. However, there will be overflow seating just outside of, of uh, city council chamber. And when I say outside, I mean literally outside the building um, in this kind of covered area out back. Um, so, you know, people, if there's no more room inside, they'll be able to sit there. Um, people will be able to then walk inside if they need to deliver public comment or anything like that. So, yeah, I mean, it's not going to look exactly the same, but um, it is definitely a significant um, milestone. Yeah, and there were some things in your story that I thought were interesting that uh, they realized some budget savings because of this virtual capacity that they don't have to fly people in. They don't have to put them up. They don't have all these travel expenses. Do you think things like that will stay perhaps forever to, you know, these innovations are actually cost saving measures? Yeah, and, and that's something I think we've even talked about on the podcast before. Um, you know, a big question at this point in the pandemic is, you know, what's going to stick around? What, you know, um, kind of new processes? And, and, and um, you know, I, I think that um, there are still some questions about what's going to stick around. One thing that they had talked about is, you know, we have um, these utility consultants um, that bill hundreds of dollars an hour mm. that, you know, do a lot of our uh, regulation of Energy New Orleans, our electricity company. And when we need them to come to a meeting, we need to buy a ticket for them to fly down. We need to buy their hotel room. Um, and they bill for every, you know, again, some of these people bill $200 an hour, $300 an hour just for sitting on the plane and coming down here. And they also talked about, you know, sometimes you want a subject, you know, you want to, okay, how can we recycle better? Well, maybe the recycling expert is in Seattle and maybe you don't want to have to fly that person down. So, you know, they're trying to create a, a world in which those people can participate without actually having to fly down. Right. Um, another side of this is that the, the virtual meetings have allowed a lot more people to participate in these public meetings. You know, a lot of City council meetings occur, you know, 10 a.m., 1 p.m. on weekdays. Um, not everyone can come and participate. And historically, in order to submit public comment, you have to come in person and actually be there physically. Um, during the pandemic, people have been able to not only submit public comment um, virtually, but they've been able to do it ahead of time. So maybe if they weren't even able to tune into the meeting live um, the night before, they could submit comment. Now. Unlike the cost savings portion of this, the council was not as clear about whether that was going to continue. It's going to continue for now as they first open up. You know, they said that people, maybe people who are more vulnerable or, or um, you know, live with someone who's vulnerable still might not be comfortable going to in-person meetings at this point. So they're leaving over, they're leaving that, you know, virtual participation option for now. Um, however, they were not as enthusiastic about keeping that, that long term. Um, I'm not sure exactly why they wouldn't. Um, I mean, one possible explanation is that 
the virtual comment has allowed, you know, people to run these public comment campaigns that, mm. you know, get 200 comments on, on a single item and that, you know, slows things down for the council, I suppose. Um, so that might be one thing they're thinking about. So some of these things are going to stick around. I don't know if they all are. We'll okay. see. It'll be interesting to see. I mean, I think some people have been, as much as it has allowed more participation for people that are not able to attend a meeting in person, I, th I think some people have been somewhat frustrated about not being able to go in person, particularly on very controversial items that they might vote on, where if a council member has to, you know, actually look someone in the face, it's, you know, it's a lot more difficult to, to ignore the points that they're making uh, than it is if, if, you know, someone from the council clerk's office is just sort of just reading off their comment in a monotone. The, the thing I'm wondering about, Michael, and I don't know if you know yet, um, but how much of the council staff has continued to work virtually and, and how is this going to affect them? Yeah, I don't have the, the, you know, I don't have the full statistics on what council staff has been doing. I, I, it sounds to me, it sounded like me, to me the whole time they've been doing a mix of virtual and, and in-person. Um, you know, in terms of where staff is going to be during these in-person meetings, um, there, it's going to be a little different than before. It sounds like that actually on the dais itself, only the city council members are going to be sitting um, where legal staff and council staff, there are rooms behind the council chamber where I believe they'll be. I, I think that like a lot of city employees, I would, I would imagine that a lot of council employees have been in person for a little while now. Um, you know, we've been trending in that direction, you know, especially among city employees. I think that kind of happened, um, I don't know, a little earlier on than, than other places I'm aware of. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if this is changing a whole lot for council staff. From what I've heard, um, a lot of people are going into the building already. Although now they're, you know, we're we're talking about rooms with dozens of people in them. So, um, you know, that does change it a bit. There's a lot of discussion nationally, globally about um, proof of vaccination in order to gain entrance into different arenas or venues, flights, maybe. Was there anything about that at city council? No, there was no discussion of that. I think that uh, from, from the government standpoint, I think that that kind of requirement or even a discussion of that type of requirement, I think the concern is that that kind of bolsters people who are, you know, buy into this kind of like vaccination tyranny, you know, they're forcing this on us kind of narrative. So I think that, you know, for a while now, um, at least locally, it seems like they've been pretty careful to step around that issue. I think that that discussion will probably become more relevant if we can't get to that 75% vaccination threshold, if we can't get to herd immunity. Um, I think for now, I think the, the, the strategy right now is, hey, we're going to do this hybrid model as we're getting to 75% and we're going to hustle as hard as we can. You know, and, and by the way, that 75% threshold, it's what um, uh, city officials have kind of pegged as, you know, once we get to 75% vaccination rate, mm. that'll be enough community prevention where we can kind of start doing these normal things again, you know, bigger events, you know, being indoors maskless. But, um, you know, on the same day that, that they announced, you know, these reopening plans, they also had a presentation on vaccination efforts from um, Health Department Director Jennifer Avegno. You know, it, it, things are going well for now. Um, you know, we're, we're, coming close to 50% vaccination for the entire population. 
Um, however, she noted that the demand is, is, sl is slowing down, um, which we knew was going to happen. We knew that the initial burst, you know, was going to be more of a supply issue. And now we're kind of changing phases into where we're facing more of a demand issue where, you know, how can we get this remaining, uh, uh, percentage of the population to get vaccinated. Um, and so that's going to be the real key. Um, you know, I think Jay Banks asked Jennifer Avegno, you know, how long are we going to be dealing with this hybrid model? Um, you know, we're entering this kind of new phase where we're not quite back, but we're not quite, you know, fully distanced. And I think that's the big question right now. And it's all going to come down to how quickly we can vaccinate or if we can vaccinate, you know, that 75% threshold. I mean, this could be months, it could be a year, right. it could be over a year. Uh, I think that this is kind of introducing a new phase that's going to be very dependent on, on the vaccination rate. Will they limit press participation or um, you, your, your coverage of that is in a person? That's a question that I should start talking to them about now, because I guess if they do get to that 30, you know, I, I mean, we've faced this issue before. I mean, it's a little different now. I mean, we, we've faced issues in the past where that room has reached the the occupancy limit and you know usually they'll still let press in in those situations but now you're dealing with you know new coronavirus restrictions I, I i would imagine that they would let press in i mean according to the city's rules you can have up to 250 people in an, in an indoor gathering and and it sounds like you know they're looking to have maybe 50 to 60 people in that room at any one time so um i would guess that press will still be able to get in but i will clarify that with them Okay. Uh, and yeah, and the other, uh, going back to your vaccination question, uh, Carolyn, um, just worth noting that, you know, it, it, this, this bill in the legislature hasn't, hasn't gone for a hearing yet. So we don't know if it, if, if it will actually get any traction, but there is a bill in the legislature that would prohibit local public agencies from, uh, from requiring, you know, not allowing people into buildings based on their vaccination status. Aha. Uh -huh. Okay. What about schools? Does that apply to schools? No, it, it would not apply to schools. The state superintendent, kind of like you said, Michael, has been, they've been very careful to not say that they would require the vaccine or, or encourage people, they, even to encourage people to get it, just because I don't think they don't want to step on any toes or start any political arguments. Yeah, J Jennifer Vigna was talking about trying to get, you know, if it, I think they're expecting Pfizer to get approved for the 12 to 15 age range. Um, and she was talking about, you know, getting vaccinations into schools, which is interesting. I hadn't heard that from the city. They have, they have it now for 16 through 18. They have some mobile wow. vaccination clinics for kids who are eligible and interested, right? So they have to have parent approval. Interesting. Do the parents have to be there? I don't think they have to be physically present. I believe they have to sign a waiver or something along those lines. But I know they advertised one day, you know, they were going to vaccinate. I think they said 50 or 60 kids at Warren Easton and only 25 ended up getting it. So I don't know if that was a, you know, a paperwork issue or, a, a, you know, who, who showed up on campus that day kind of issue. But I'm looking at our city numbers right now. And we have 43% who have started the vaccination process and, you know, only 37% have completed it. So we're... We're only like halfway there. Is that, is that full population or eligible? Population? That is a full population of the eligible population. And we have 54% who have had at least one dose and 46% completed. So is, is Cantrell 75% hinge on eligible? 
Um, no, it's total population. So, so Vegna was per, like basically saying she was excited about this getting approved for younger and younger kids because that's really going to boost our overall population rate. Um, you know, especially if you do have to get the vaccination for school, if you you know, if among kids the vaccination rate is even higher, you know, that would really help. It sounds like I don't know. It, it sounds like it's going to be tough to get to that seventy-five percent point. Um, I'm personally pretty worried about it i don't know uh we'll see but it, it's it's going to get harder and harder to, to to get those you know last people um and now they're talking about with these new variants you know they're saying is 75 percent enough maybe you need 80 percent because these are more transmissible I, I think we're moving into like a new phase of how we think about this virus um and um kind of a new calculation but but you know it's going to be a holding pattern with the city council for a while um in terms of how they're they're doing this. And we're hearing more, some people are starting to say that we're no longer really focused on, you know, reaching that herd immunity threshold as much as we are getting to a, a, a large, you know, a threshold where it's a controllable um, situation rather, rather than something that we had earlier hoped to more or less eliminate. But the interesting thing will be, you know, if, if, the decision, you know, if we do get this down to, you know, they've been talking about if we can make this more like a flu, you know. Right. That's what, yeah, that's what I'm yeah. talking about. The yeah. interesting choices will be, you know, if we do get it to that point and we can, you know, lift, you know, wearing masks indoors, you know, even if we can get to that point and that changes the death count from, you know, 20,000 to 40,000, you know, I think that's going to be the really, you know, what's the acceptable level of, of death um, from this virus. Right. It's going to be interesting to see when we flu on an average year is 30 to 50,000 deaths. Right. And, and there's a lot of people I've talked to who dealt with the flu, you know, who work in, you know, with, with elderly people or work in, in, in healthcare who are, have long been really frustrated about how lax we are about the flu. So, you know, I think there's exactly. also a question of, okay, even if we can get it down to this point where it's like the flu, I mean, do we still want to roll back these measures or were we treating the flu too cavalierly all these years? Hmm. I mean, there's a million questions. Right. But, um, yeah. One final question about city council. It Was there consensus about in-person or anybody disagree with this idea? No, I, you know, again, I think that, you know, uh, they're, they're still maintaining the option for people to be virtual. So, so, you know, people who are still uncomfortable or more vulnerable still have an option to participate. And I think they're right that the, the, the legal authority that allowed them to stop in-person meetings, it's getting a little bit shakier. And the general consensus seemed to be it's, it's the safest thing to do um, legally, ethically, um, would be to start kind of having these hybrid meetings. Yeah, I mean, I guess the question, the question for that is um, at some point, if or when the government or the governor lists statewide emergency orders, the council members themselves wouldn't have the authority to participate virtually. Right. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and yeah, so currently it's been virtual meetings. Basically, one council member at a time has been actually in that room. Everyone else has been virtual. Um, so yeah, I mean, they'll be in the room together again, which will be interesting. And yeah, I mean, just to get back to Charles' point earlier, I mean, I do think that ultimately it's important to hold in-person meetings. And I think that there have been some discussions and some decisions that have happened in the city council that would not have gone the same way if there were people moaning and groaning in person and rolling their eyes and, you know, body language. You know, I just, there's some time, there have been some times where the council is having some conversations where, you know, they're just, it, it just doesn't connect with, I think, what a lot of people watching were thinking. And, and 
you know, again, I think that that physical presence is important. Um, I think, you know, overall, people were supportive. Well, thank you, Michael. Thank you. Everybody have a great week. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, Marta Jusen, Nick Krastel, Michael Isaac Stein, and Lens editor, Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news along with opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>